Amen. In our community, lots of churches will on this day be celebrating Reformation Day, the day when we think back to our favorite keg-handling monk, Martin Luther, nailed on the castle doors at Wittenberg, those 95 theses back in 1517 or some such date as that. Nearly 500 years ago, we remember this cataclysmic transformation that happened in the church, has happened subsequently in the world, and it was often recognized that he was a major player in kicking off this change. One of the things that we may not think about very much is that part of what drove Luther, part of what urged him to say we've got to discuss some things that are not right, was that he had spent so much time hanging out in the neighborhood of the scriptures, the places where God lives, and he got an education there. He began to find his concerns being tampered with and his interior life being reoriented. One of the things he was most concerned about as he hung out in the scriptures and then looked out on the world was that the church of which he was a part was taking advantage of people that were poor. The church was disadvantaging the very people that they were to be disadvantaging themselves for the sake of. The church was taking advantage of people who had no one else in the world. Instead of being a haven for the oppressed, they were becoming the oppressor. And so much of the Reformation was kicked off because of a concern for people that God's concerned about, but that other people are sometimes not so concerned about. And it's interesting that we could come upon this text on a day like this, where... Moses is saying, okay, Israel, you're not going to have to eat beanie weenies anymore. There's no more ramen noodles for you. No more efficiency apartments. You've got a large wooded lot. You've got a custom-made home. You're going to live high on the hog, as they say. This is what God has done for you. He's rescued you when you were nothing. He said, I'll make you something. When you had no money, he said, I'll supply for you. When you were economically depressed, when you were socially oppressed, God said, I'll make you my treasure. I'll bring liberation to you. And I've watched over you. I've resourced you. I've made sure you haven't worn out. And now you're about to come in. And what does the Lord require of you? It's the question put to every living soul. Who's thinking about it? What does the Lord require of me? What does God want from me? What am I to do in response to all of God's beneficence, His kindness, His generosity to me? And here's how Moses answers the question. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Moses says this sort of thing about 
300 times in this book alone. In response to God's kindness, in response to God's love, love Him back. In response to God's choosing of you, choose Him back. In response to God giving a rip about you, give a rip about Him back. That's how you show your care. All of these things are just aspects of the same thing, and I think they can be summarized this way. What does God require of us? What does God want from us? What is our response to God's kindness to us? Follow in your Father's footsteps. One of the best ways that children honor their parents, one of the highest compliments that could be paid to a parent who has done something well is for someone to look at the kid and say, oh, they're your spitting image. They're following in their father's footsteps. They're following in their mother's footsteps. Ordinarily, that's meant to be a compliment, and that's how we're going to use it today. Aspire to be the spitting image of your father. See, throughout the Bible, God gives us this motivation when He calls us to do anything. All the ethical commands, all the ways that we're to see other people, all the ways that we're to treat other people, they're all premised on God's prior treatment of us. We're always asked to reflect on that. We're always asked to rehearse that. So when God says down here, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, loves the alien, and you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens. God's command to follow in His footsteps, the way you're to treat these people, the way you're to view these people, is to realize and remember and to have impressed in you that this is how God treated you. You were in their spot. This is what God did for you. Now, when they're in the spot you were in, act like God. Adopt God's concerns. You know the story? I think Hutch preached on it this summer. Where Jesus talks about the, the dude who had a... It racked up a sizable amount of debt. He gets the loans called in, the king says, you owe me approximately one gazillion dollars. Which is an amount. And the guy says, I can't pay. And he says, okay, I'll pay. You're free. And then he goes out and the guy owes him five bucks because he, he bought a burger one day and he got a Coke. And he takes him and he starts to shake him for five bucks. And God is ticked. That's not exactly how it goes, but that's the Notes version. And why is God ticked? It was because... How on earth can you shake somebody's neck and bop them in the nose over five bucks when you just had a gazillion bucks of indebtedness released from you? And so on and on throughout the scriptures, we're told, as dearly loved children, live a life of love. As mercy has been shown to you, show mercy. This is not a complicated thing. I think you're familiar with it. We're always called to follow in our Father's footsteps, to act towards others the way that He has acted toward us. And who are those that we're called to show this kind of concern for? Who is it that we will demonstrate best that we're following our Father's footsteps and our care for? It's not the people that we would expect. You know, God has a chance here to say, in your community, make sure you love each other real sweet. And He will talk about that. 
But in this particular passage, he says, as I sum it up here, what does the Lord require of you? Walk in God's ways, and here's what walking in His ways is going to look like right here. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. It's utterly confounding. The God, the great King, owner of the heavens, owner of the earth, says, here's how you show that you're walking in my steps. You care about outsiders. You give a rip about strangers. You become preoccupied with people that nobody else even has on their radar screen except for God Himself. That's what my people are going to be like. My heart, God says, is going to beat in my people. My spirit is going to live in my people and they're going to be animated with my concerns. And what's a big concern to God? The widow. Orphan. The alien. And of course, God does not so far as we understand this revelation, have a preoccupation with life forms on another planet. When he says alien, he, I don't think he's talking about Martians or dudes that land in certain areas in Arizona and New Mexico. Alien, sojourner, an immigrant, someone who's from another place and now they're in a place that ain't their home. But they're living there. And all these people share in common a great deal of well, in the eyes of the world, worthlessness. They don't contribute much to the gross national product. They don't, they don't seem to have any real value. They're the kind of people that you can help, and they don't seem to give you anything back. God is asking us, I think, to have a response like a fictitious character named Athy Keith, who's an older gentleman dwelling in Kentucky in a book. And it was said of Athi that it was the kind of man who would, for instance, when Roger Roberts, who had a speech impediment that made him introduce himself as Wajel Wabbits, that when the kids would make fun of Wajel, that Athi would come upon them and say, boys, don't do that. Because he had a sense that his was to defend those who couldn't defend themselves. And they would listen. And it was said of Athi Keith that such was his influence among us, and as he got older, he seemed always to become more tender. He cared for his mules and his cow, and he spoke of them as if they were members of his family. He always had something to say to babies and small children. He talked to dogs that he met in his passages through town. He had always been a good man, I think, but this tenderness was new. It was the tenderness of an old man who had been busy all his life, but now had time to pay attention to useless things. It was the tenderness of a man who had been busy all his life, but now he had time to pay attention to useless things. And it seems to me that one of the hallmarks of people who have been invaded by God is that all of a sudden you find yourself starting to care about what the world would call useless things. The kind of people that when you help them, they're not going to let you stay at their beach house later. They don't know what a beach house is. 
They're the kind of people that when you go and sit with them, they've been so marred and, and gnarled and broken on the wheels of living. Their pain is such that all they can do when you're sitting with them is just rehearse their pain over and over again. The kind of people that you say, I don't know if I can sit with you anymore because it seems to me that all you do is talk about yourself. And it's true. Eugene Peterson says the poor, well, there's no cash value in the poor. They're not the kind of people that you're going to serve and then they're going to invite you to their Christmas party. They're not going to write you a thank you note and they're just as rotten as you are. But they got nobody looking out for them. They live their life on a tightrope. They don't care when the market tanks. They have no interest in the market. They don't know if the market tanks. They live their life on a tightrope and if they misstep, they crash. See, most of us, though, we don't realize that we... We walk, it seems, on a tightrope, but we've got a harness on us. You've been to the circus, right? You understand this metaphor? We've got a harness on us, and we've got, like the people practicing those trapeze artists, we've got a big net underneath, so it might feel like we're falling, but most of you in here, and me too, man, we've got people that love us, that care for us. We've got nets that make sure we're not going to fall, and that's why we're called to be a net. Not a net, A-N-N-E-T-T-E. We're called to be a net, N-E-T. We're called to be someone who's there to catch the people that don't have anybody to catch them. Called to be the very everlasting arms of God that are underneath the people that have got nobody looking out for. To pay attention to useless things. It's interesting when you listen to the Apostle Paul talk about the church in 1 Corinthians 12, that he's fairly adamant that as he talks about the body, that no part of the body can say to the other, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Paul envisions this idea that there are people who may not be able to offer anything, but they're still indispensable. They're still to be the objects of our care. And if we're going to follow in our Father's footsteps, we're going to have to constantly think, how has He treated us, and what does He call us to do to represent His concerns in the world? And one of the things that it has to be always and forever is to care for the orphan and the widow and the alien. writer has said, if I can find what he said, he says this, you know, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He says, part of my concern with the religious right is that they care about the sacredness of life. But if I want their support and I'm an unborn child, I'd better stay unborn as long as possible. Because once I'm born, I'm off their radar screen. The reality is that we are just as much made in God's image after we're born as before we're born. You know what's exciting, an exciting development to me? Is that 
God has roused His people to care about the rights of the unborn to say we have to defend babies who haven't made it into the world yet. We have to be a spokesperson for them and we will reject as foolishness anyone who says or tries to spin this in some way like if you care about babies who haven't been born then therefore you do not care about women. It's utterly unintelligible to say that. But the other thing that's happening right now is that adoption is getting sexy. And that's an amazing development, a kindness from the Lord. And that's what's got to happen. We've got to be concerned about the unborn. We've got to fight for the rights of the unborn. And you know what we've got to do? We've got to be there when the unborn are born. We've got to be those who support and actually participate in saying... We'll take the babies that nobody else wants. We'll take the children that no one else wants. We'll work in the schools where nobody else cares about those kids. Many of you are doing that. Many of you are supporting works like that. That reflects God's heart. This is part of what we're to be about. A community of mothers and fathers. Who mother and father our own children, sure, but also open the arms wider and our heart wider still to take on other children. Whether that's bringing them into your home or being involved in their lives in some way, we are called, like God, to care about the fatherless. We're also called to, if we're going to walk in His footsteps, to care about widows. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. God says in James, through James, the brother of our Lord, that true religion can really be boiled down to this, that you, you care about orphans and widows and their distress and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. That when you start to care about people who've got nobody, you're reflecting what God cares about. Single moms. Those who don't have husbands. Those who are stuck in their houses. And those who, well, they've got no social structure. They've got no safety nets. And they're therefore very easy to forget. You perhaps heard me say before, in a very telling song by someone I really like, Pierce Pettis, he says in Grandmother's Song, he says, Now my grandmother lies in a crumpled bed, and at night she hears voices in her head. And the family worries in the whispering dark if she's got her religion right. It's a hardening of the arteries. It's a softening of the mind. And I mean to go and see her, but I cannot ever seem to find the time. See, Athy Keith was able to start paying attention to useful things, useless things because he had the time. It strikes me that one of the things that God calls us to do in caring for the orphan, the widow, the alien is He reminds us that all the things that we think are so important, accomplishment, acquisition of things, all the things that we characterize as success, God says, those aren't the things that I characterize as success. The easiest people to forget are the people who are stuck in their homes and you don't even know about them. Even the people for me, I know... The people that I know that I intend to visit because no one else is visiting them, they're the people that easily get pushed off my schedule when I get too big, busy. They're not calling. 
They're not saying, where are you? They're not saying, can you email me back? Can you meet me next Tuesday? They're not saying anything. And it strikes me that one of the ways that we're attentive to the Lord, one of the ways that we're paying attention to His concerns, is we're paying attention to the people who may offer us nothing, who may need to take from us, may not be able to give us anything back, but they need our friendship. They need our companionship. They need our help. And God has said, walk in my footsteps and show that to widows and to orphans. And He says this, And God loves the alien, giving him food and clothing, and you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. You may realize, if you are ever awake during daytime hours, which I hope most of you are at some point, that we are at present in a time where there is great debate as a country about how you handle immigration, illegal aliens. What do you do with them? Should there be expedited processes and pathways to citizenship? What do you do with kids who are brought over to no doing of their own? What do you do? What do you do? I am here not to tell you anything to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what should be done about this. But here's what I do know from the tenor of the Scriptures. Is that our primary concern about this issue cannot be about legality. That cannot be our primary concern. That can't be the first concern. So for Christians, the primary concern has to be compassion. It's interesting to me and somewhat instructive perhaps if we could imagine Jesus as He saw the crowds... They had been with him for two or three days, and he says to his disciples, I have compassion on these people. Will you go and make sure they've not got expired visas and that they're here legally so then we can feed them? He doesn't say that. Of course he wouldn't have had an opportunity to say that. It's a joke. But you know what he does say? I see these people, and I have compassion on them. Why don't we feed them? That's a feature of Jesus in general. He sees the crowds are harassed and helpless. And he has compassion on his guts shake. He's moved inside. It's really one of your most powerful motivators when you're trying to help somebody is if you can identify with them in some way, not just looking down on them. And see, that's the problem. That's why he says, you are aliens. Remember, you are aliens. Because you know what happens to us when we forget that we were someone who was the object of God's special affection? That we're somebody who all the privileges we have have been conferred on us. Is that we start to think because we have more than somebody that we are more than somebody. And because they have less than we do, they are less than we are. There's something defective with them, there's something good about us. It's subtle. It's not the sort of thing we say out loud, but it creeps into our thoughts. So that we can pass the dirty faced girl on the side of the road, hungry broke, in need of help, and feels scorn. Get a job! Well, I don't know what you should do about her either, but I do know this. I don't think you should see anybody and be filled with scorn. The second we see somebody that's in a land that's not their own, we see somebody who is in a place where they don't belong, and this kind of thing happens... When actual illegal aliens, it happens in middle schools and high schools all around you. There, there are kids that don't fit in. There are people that don't fit in. There are people that don't seem like they belong. And so long as we're 
looking at them with contempt, we won't be able to help them. We won't have the engine of compassion moving us to befriend and not to belittle. But when you start to realize, hey, this is someone who bears God's image. This is someone who's important to God. They need to be important to me. I've been treated so well. I had the great wisdom of being born into the family that I was, in the century that I was. I wisely chose my parents. Wait. None of you chose your parents. And they didn't choose theirs. None of you chose where you got to be born. Do you remember this? No, you don't remember it because you were born and you don't have a memory of that. If you do, I would like to hear about it. That would be cool. We are the people who have been the recipients of privileges, the recipients of advantage. We have been given things and God wants us, like the Israelites, to remember we've been given things so that when we look at people, we realize, oh, we've been given things they have not. That's the only difference between us. We've been given mercy, they haven't yet. We need to help give it to them. Why should we do this? God says we're to love aliens because He loves them. One of the most powerful resources is you start to realize everywhere you go, all the people that you're tempted to, to criticize, to be harsh with, the people that God loves. And if we're going to walk in our Father's footsteps, if He's going to be the most important thing to us dictating our concerns and our emotions, then we're going to have to say, wait a second, if I feel scorned for someone, I'm wrong. If I think I'm better than someone, I need fixing. Why am I so far off from my Father who is said to love these people? One dude, who I'm calling a dude because I can't remember his name, but I'm sure it was a dude, said that in our world right now, that there is always this kind of fascination. Whenever the, an image of Jesus appears on a grilled cheese sandwich or on a potato chip, you've seen these news reports. People will sell a hot cross bun that appeared on eBay for $32. It's got the picture of Jesus. An image of Jesus has shown up on a hamburger bun. And he says, we get, the world gets so amazed by this. The teaching of the scripture is that we meet the image of God every single day. Not on a discardable pastry but on people that could be regarded as discardable. Bonhoeffer says, you never know beforehand how God's image ought to appear. But we're going to be confronted with it all over the place. And the question of what to do in all these cases is not exactly clear, but we ought, at the very least, to be moved by compassion. We ought, at the very least, to see in people we meet, no matter what their color no matter what their economic status, no matter what their marital status, we ought to see someone with whom we identify. And to the extent that we don't, we have a chance to do what Moses says here. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. We have a chance to say, Lord, I am filled with hatred here. I'm filled with apathy here. You're going to have to do something with me. I don't love what you love and hate what you hate. I hate what you love. I love what you hate. Fix me. Forgive me. Do something with me. 
See, the way that you're going to be able to love others is realize how God has loved you. The way you're going to be able to show compassion and mercy to all these defenseless classes of people, widows, orphans, the alien, is you're going to have to think of yourself as a recipient of merchant, this, uh, not merchant, of mercy. Godric is a 4th century monk who's greatly revered. He's a hermit, lives out in the woods. And a young man wants to be his biographer. He wants to write a biography about him and he's taken with Godric. And he says, you've been named well, Father. And Godric says, Father, my bum. He says, oh, you have a holy name for a babe born to be holy. And Godric answers him, fiddle my faddle. And the biographer who's holding this holy man in such esteem says, the God part means God. That's plain as your nose. The Rick is Saxon for rain, so Godric in some means God reigns. Godric. It means God reigns in you, sir. It means when God comes down at last to weigh the souls of men, he'll not find Godric's wanting, Father Godric. Because Godric knows mercy. You know how he responds to this adulation? He says, fetch me a bowl to puke in. And then he says this, I decided to teach him another way to think about my name. The God part is God's for sure. You hit that square, but Rick is erse for wreck. I say not knowing erse from arse. God's wreck I be. It means God's wrecked Godric for his sins. Or that Godric's sins have made a wreck of God. And as he goes on, he says this to him. Make sure you put this in your biography. That Godric is self-seeking. And proud as a peacock, a hypocrite. A ravener of alms and dainty too. A slothful, greedy bear. Not worthy to be called a servant of the Lord when he treats such servants as you like dung, as I've just done. Make sure you put all this and worse about Godric in your book. This holy man knows that he's God's wreck. This holy man knows all the foulness inside him and that God has still even though he's ruining God's brand image, that God is still having something to do with him. That's what God wants the Israelites to know. That's what God wants Christians today as modern day people of God to know. That's what Martin Luther knew on his deathbed. This man who kicked off this cataclysmic change, we're told as he died, there was a scrap of paper, this may be apocryphal, but we'll go with it. There was a scrap of paper on his bedside table that said this. The last thing he wrote. We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. If you're going to follow in your father's footsteps, if you're going to be the spitting image of the father, we're going to have to see ourselves like that. The worst person we see is no different than ourselves. Someone who stands in need of God being better to them than they deserve. You won't look down contemptuously at anyone if you think of yourself 
as a, be- as a beggar, as you echo the mercy you've received in all the places you go to the fatherless, to the widow, and to the alien. I hope that we will be a community with ripples and echoes of this beggarly mentality that gets much from God and then gives away our lives for God.